You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual I usually read a few tweets at the end of the show, but I'm going to make an exception this week, this show, for McKinley, who tweeted this at me. Hey, at Fake Dan Savage, I'm going to need your take on these Bezos sects on the next hashtag Savage Lovecast. Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, announced last week that he and his wife, Mackenzie Bezos, were separating after 25 years of marriage. As divorce announcements go, it was a pretty good one, thanks no doubt to the tireless efforts of dozens of rich for PR flax PR flax. We feel incredibly lucky to have found each other and deeply grateful for every one of the years we've been married to each other, the statement read. If we had known we would separate after 25 years, we would do it all again. Lovely and hopefully true. All right, on to the Bezos sext messages. As it turns out, the Bezoses were separated and Jeff was seeing someone else while still married to his wife, which is something separated people are allowed to do. It's something unseparated people sometimes do and sometimes are allowed to do. And Jeff was sending sext messages to his girlfriend, which is something that people do with their girlfriends and boyfriends and NB friends. But somehow in Jeff's case, the National Enquirer got a hold of his sex messages and published them. Before I read the sex messages themselves, I saw the screaming tabloid headline about the sex messages on the cover of the New York Post. Amazon slime. Get it? Amazon Prime, Amazon slime. Ha ha ha. The New York Post actually printed one of Jeff's scandalous, salacious, oh-so-slimy sexts on the cover of the paper. And oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, is it a doozy. Bezos sexts to his mistress. I want to smell you. I want to breathe you in. Wait, did I say doozy? I meant snoozy. That sex message didn't make Jeff look slimy. If anything, it confirmed my suspicion that no one at the New York Post has ever been in love or gotten laid at all. So no one at the Post has ever been sent a sexy sext by anyone ever. Because if I may paraphrase John Kerry, who among us does not like smelling our lovers? As dirty, filthy, sexy, slimy, sexed messages go, I like how you smell is right up there with pick up a gallon of milk on the way home. So I headed from the sex-negative, homophobic, misogynistic New York Post over to the sex-positive, right-on-feminist website Jezebel. Surely Jezebel would take a dim view of the invasion of someone's privacy like this, even if that someone happened to be a fabulously wealthy old white guy. No one and nothing is safe, Jezebel thundered after Jennifer Lawrence's sensitive and private data was hacked in 2014. Now, in her case, those were nude photos, arguably more sensitive than sexed messages. All right, definitely more sensitive. But still, someone's private messages were hacked and posted online for all to see and all to read. And that wasn't okay in Lawrence's case. And in this case, it wasn't just being done to Jeff, rich old white man. It was being done to his girlfriend, too, who is only guilty of being rich old white man adjacent. So what did Jezebel have to say about this hack? Please try and keep your morning repast down as it brings me no pleasure to share this news with you now. But there appear to be dirty texts from divorcee bajillionaire Jeff Bezos that only prove that shiny, bald, rich motherfuckers don't really know how to sext. 
Jezebel, usually a staunch defender of sexual freedom, a site where you can read posts like how to have an open relationship, why does polyamory freak people out, mom, I have two boyfriends. That Jezebel goes on to scold Bezos and his girlfriend for, quote unquote, creeping around before Jeff and Mackenzie Bezos got around to announcing their divorce. Um, maybe Jeff and Mackenzie were giving the open relationship thing a whirl first. Maybe they were giving that a try first and then decided to divorce after they gave each other the okay to maybe see other people while they were separated. Maybe that's what happened here. Maybe nobody was creeping around. Anyway, after reading the post, after reading Jezebel, I read some of Jeff's sex, maybe all of them. And all I got reading Jeff's sex was a shitty feeling and not a shitty feeling about Jeff. Because Jeff Bezos didn't say anything particularly filthy other than what appears to be some crappy autocorrect errors. Thanks, Alexa. There's nothing slimy or scandalous or creepy about Jeff's sex. And the timing of them, he sent them before his divorce was made public. That isn't a scandal or really anyone else's business. Sometimes relationships end and the people in them have moved on before they decide to tell their friends, families, and shareholders the news. Reading Jeff Bezos' mild, not wild sex didn't leave me feeling titillated sexually or politically. I didn't get that, oh, a rich and powerful person is getting his just desserts here. I'll get that feeling when every last Amazon worker slaving away in a sweltering warehouse somewhere is in a union and being paid a living wage. All I felt while reading Bezos' sex messages was bad. Because reading them made me feel complicit in the invasion of... Yes, complicit in the invasion of the privacy of a man whose business model relies on compromising, if not quite invading, everyone else's privacy. But still, maybe I'd feel differently if Jeff Bezos was a moralizing scold, but he isn't. You can buy dildos and bondage gear on Amazon right now. You know, I never looked at Jennifer Lawrence's nudes. A real sacrifice on my part, I know. And in the future... I am going to take the same approach to leaks of other people's sexed messages. Because you know what? I'd rather reread my own. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro and magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons and tons of your cues and lots and lots of my A's. The micro edition of the Savage Lovecast is, of course, free. You can subscribe to the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, many more guests, and no ads. That is the magnum Savage Lovecast. Subscribe at savagelovecast.com. Hey, Dan. I'm a 25-woman bisexual uh, living in California, and I've been super fortunate to have found someone who I love incredibly dearly and he's been amazing and I like couldn't imagine a life without him. The problem that I keep on running into is that I feel like I'm an attention whore <laughs> and I just can't like I can't feel like I can't stop like talking to other people and wanting like something out of it whether it's like flirtation or sexuality and I haven't cheated on him, but I've definitely I've caught myself like catching myself on that line. And then I pull back, but I feel bad that I even like go on that, like towards that line. And I just, I don't know like what to do because again, I've been with him for about a year and a half and I feel like I shouldn't feel this way. But at the same time, I just wonder if like, is this something that means I'm poly? Does this mean that I 
actually need to be looking into something more into the relationship than I'm seeing. I'm just really confused as I do love him dearly, but I just keep on like wanting to find something that fills something more than what he's able to give me and to no fault of his own and nothing that I feel like he should be having to fill. There's wanting to flirt with other people and there's wanting to fuck other people. Now, Everyone who's in a monogamous relationship at times wants to fuck other people. And, you know, most people in monogamous relationships, they've made that monogamous commitment. They intend to honor it. Occasionally will get their flirt on without any intent to follow through. Never going to fuck anybody else, but they like the attention. They like that affirmation. They like the affirmation they get, particularly from someone who, whose job isn't to affirm them. You know, you go to your partner and you say, am I attractive? Am I sexy? And they're like, yes, yes. And a part of you goes, you have to say that to me. And so you need to hear it occasionally from somebody else so that you believe your partner when your partner says it to you when you're in a monogamous relationship. We have it in our heads that flirting is always a problem or a desire to flirt. A desire for this kind of attention is always going to be a problem in our relationship. And I think that's a choice. I think we opt in to that problem. We make it a problem. And it isn't a problem for everybody. You could go to your boyfriend and say, you know, occasionally I like to flirt with other people because, you know, I like that attention. And then I come home and I plow all that energy into you. And it makes me sort of buy into your attraction to me in a way. And it helps me to really feel that you're telling the truth when you say you're still attracted to me after ages and ages, after all these months we've been together in the last year and a half. And so there's something in it for you too when I occasionally flirt and I have never crossed that line. I'm not cheating. And then see what he says. He may not regard this as a problem. Some people like to go out with their partners and watch their partners flirt. Not all those people are cuckolds or hot husbands. Some people just like to be in a room or at a club or at an event, at a show, a rock show, and they see how attractive their partner is because they see their partner through the eyes of other people. So your assumption right now, a year and a half into this relationship is that if your boyfriend knew that occasionally you like to get your flirt on, that this would potentially end the relationship, that he would be upset and angered by this. And that assumption may not be accurate. may not be true. So I would advise you before you start identifying as poly, before you figure out whether to be happy, you need to actually have multiple partners to go to your boyfriend and have a conversation about this fact. You're in a committed relationship. Right now it's exclusive. Almost all open relationships were exclusive at first. So what the relationship is now is not what the relationship has to be always. But now your relationship is exclusive. You're happy with that. He's happy with that. And then – but what you want to talk about is sometimes you're attracted to other people and you assume sometimes he's attracted to other people. And there are times when you're in places where guys flirt with you and you enjoy that attention. And you want to know how he feels about that, about you getting that kind of attention. Maybe it feels risky for him. Maybe it feels dangerous because he worries you'll cheat on him. But then you flip the conversation. There have to be times when he's in rooms or in spaces where he sees other people that he's attracted to. There have to have been times where he's flirted with other people in the year and a half that you've been together. How do you feel about that? How do you guys process that together? People in committed monogamous relationships create conflict that they could step around because the assumption should be, of course, you're sometimes attracted to other people. Of course, sometimes I'm attracted to other people. We don't then have to police each other for evidence of what we can just assume to be true. We shouldn't be inconsiderate. I'm not going to flirt with other people at your dad's funeral. You're not going to flirt with my coworkers at a company party because this could create 
drama and make our relationship appear to be something that it's not or just make us look like people with terrible judgment, like terrible people with terrible judgment. And we don't want to be that way. But there's sometimes, you know, if you clock the barista because she's hot, I'm not going to blow up because, of course, you're sometimes attracted to other people. If you drool and pant after the barista in an inconsiderate way, that's a problem. The inconsideration is the problem, not the attraction. And you can have this conversation with your boyfriend about what it means to be monogamous, and what that commitment means right now in your relationship. And then you won't feel so guilty if indeed you can carve out a space where you both have this zone of erotic autonomy where if you're out and somebody buys you a drink, you don't have to throw it at them. That you can accept that attention with the understanding you're not going to blow that guy in the bathroom. And he can accept or even give that attention to somebody else when he's out alone with the understanding that he's not – going to get blown in the bathroom or eat pussy in the bathroom or anything else. And you're going to come home at the end of the night to him or he's going to come home to you feeling affirmed, feeling sexy, feeling hot, and then leaping on each other. And that can be what you decide to do now in this relationship now. If as you continue, 25 years old, if as you continue to get older and learn more about yourself and what you need to make a relationship, particularly a long-term commitment work, you may move into open, which is not the same thing as poly, or you may end up moving into poly down the road. That's an ongoing conversation you need to have with your boyfriend. But the first part of that conversation you can have now, and it's not open or closed. The first part of that conversation is I'm still attracted to other people sometimes. I don't act on it, but I enjoy the attention. How do you feel about that? How do I feel about you sometimes being attracted to other people, enjoying the attention or giving the attention and enjoying it being well-received. Start there. Hi, Mr. Savage. I'm a gay male in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been talking to a guy for about uh, two months now. And it's weird because he, he's an engineer, a mechanical engineer, and he never, he'll text me back, but I have to initiate everything. You know, I can be more dominant in the bedroom but then like outside the bedroom like he, he's, he's much bigger than me I guess bearish type of man and he's just extremely submissive like to the point where like he he will text me back if I text him but I have to always text him so I told him I spoke we spoke and I said hey can you text me you know good morning or how you're doing and he, he will do it now he does it then, like, the other Friday, like, yesterday, which was today's Saturday and yesterday, you know, he got off of work and everything, and he never even asked me, like, what I'm up to. He never invites me to do anything. Like, the only time ever is, like, he'll be like, well, you can come to my house, but he lives in, like, a little country town, and it's boring, you know? And I like him. We went on a date one time to Cracker Barrel, you know, not my favorite place, but he's a nice person. And like, when we talk, we do have good conversation. You know, we, we do. I enjoy conversations. He's funny. He's interesting to me. And I, I don't know. I've said to him, do you feel weird? Do you think I'm not into you because you're bigger? Do you feel strange by that? You know, I, I, I don't want you to feel objectified. I like you. I want this thing to work, but it's like, I'm just like, it's like pulling teeth. You want this thing to work. It might be that you have to do all the work to make this thing work. You say he's an engineer. You say he's very submissive. That has me wondering, and I know this is an assumption, and perhaps this is a stereotype and not true in all cases, but I heard you say that, and I thought, is he on the spectrum? 
Does he not have the ability, as you do perhaps, as I do, I hope, to read people's social cues, to anticipate their needs, and to meet them? And he may not. But if the other stuff he brings to the table, because he's kind and he's fun and you click sexually, you enjoy spending time with him and you enjoy these conversations, if all of that, if you put that on one side of the scales and you put on the other side of the scales, I have to do all the work, I have to do all the initiating because he doesn't know to do it and doesn't think to do it. If the annoyance of you having to do all that work and always having to initiate outweighs the joys and pleasures of being with him, then you need to end this relationship because he can't meet your needs in a way that you need them to be met. Now, who knows? Maybe if you prompt him enough over six months or a year, he will begin to take into consideration what he needs to do to keep you in his life and come through. But he may not. He may never come through with the good morning texts or the initiating conversations, or the making of dates. And then you have to decide whether this is someone you can be with long-term if he's not going to be able to meet those particular needs of yours. I guess what I'm tiptoeing up to is, are you willing to pay this price of admission? The price of admission to be with this guy long-term may be you are the initiator, always. If you're not willing to pay that price of admission to be with this guy, thank him for his time, tell him you'll always remember him fondly, and go find somebody else who's better situated emotionally and socially to meet your needs. Hi, Dan. Queer, college student, cisgendered woman calling. And I have a question about letting your partner explore their kinks without you. So I'm totally in love with my girlfriend, even though we've only been dating a few months. Uh, And I think she feels the same about me and constantly tells me that I have everything that she wants in a partnership and like to marry and things like that. However, we have already talked a couple different times about how she has like a fat life account and has explored kink with other people and that because of some trauma that she's had in her past, sometimes she has the urge to want to explore something like that in a really dominant way um, involving hurting people and things like that. And like obviously consensual with them, but even the little things she's done with me, I can't find myself really enjoying. So I'm struggling because ideally, you know, you're taught to want to be everything that your partner needs and wants but I'm trying to be more open to understand that maybe I can't meet all of her needs and that I don't need to, but I'm hoping that maybe you can give me some advice about how to go about letting her explore something that she needs and not letting myself be down or letting it affect our relationship or maybe just only affecting it in a positive way so she can have that outlet. So there's a thing that you said that really leapt out at me. We're taught to want to be everything our partner could ever need or want. And that is true. Mm -hmm. We are taught that. And it sets our relationships up for failure. Yeah. Because we can't be everything our partner could need or want. Esther Perel, uh, in both of her books, speaks very uh, movingly uh, and with great insight about this fact. There's so much that we used to get from a whole village of people that we now get. We're told we can only legitimately get from 
our romantic partner that we used to get, you know, emotional support from kin and friends and neighbors. Uh, and we would get, you know, we would have you know, intellectual friends and clubs pursuits that we were involved in where we get intellectual stimulation. And now we're told we can only get that in one person. And that puts such pressure and stress on our relationships. And mm -hmm. we can take that pressure and stress off our relationships just by acknowledging that this thing that we were told is a lie that sets us up for failure. Yeah. And I'm, I think I'm trying to understand that more, but it is harder to get used to. And the, the, your particular, I think, dilemma here is what you were taught, one person has to be all things to this other person, which one person can never be, kind of is overlaid with, you know, the fear of your partner getting a sexual need met outside the relationship and what that means or symbolizes, that there's something terribly wrong with your relationship, that you must be inadequate in some way if mm -hmm. you can't meet at least all of your partner's sexual needs because, whoa, it's a terrible thing that two people are together and they say they're committed, but one of them or both of them sometimes have sex with other people, that means they're not really in love because love means not wanting to fuck anybody else or touch anybody else, which is another lie that we're told that sets yeah. our relationships up for failure. Yeah, and she has told me things like you are enough and et cetera, but just that there are these other needs that wouldn't turn it that aren't love or anything like that. Right. And, and, and here's how I think you can help. You can actually, you know, shove this square peg into that round hole just by reframing what it means to meet someone's needs. Maybe what she wants and needs is a partner who lets her do these particular things with other people outside of the context of romantic committed relationship. So in a sense, you're meeting her needs you're being everything that she needs in a partner by allowing her this little space to explore these sexual interests that she isn't interested in exploring with a romantic partner. And not all people into S&M or BDSM or power play want to or can do that in the context of their committed relationship. It doesn't mean that their committed relationship isn't their primary relationship isn't meeting most of their emotional, social, and sexual needs. It is, but there's just this thing alongside it that people who don't have those kinks will say, well, why can't you just not do it? And for some kinky people, that's the price of admission that they pay to be in that mm -hmm. relationship. But as I like to say, sex is really powerful. Sex is really strong. And people will look at people with kinks and say, well, just don't. But those drives are really powerful and damming them up creates pressure and then people act out in crazy yeah. ways. People will get what they need in a way that's not okay with their partner, that violates the terms of their commitment, that can really lead to a relationship extinction level event. And so maybe you just need to understand this is, you know, you were taught to be everything. Well, in this way, you are being everything. You're the, the loving partner who lets her be who she is in its entirety, which includes this aspect of her sexuality. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. There are different ways we can meet each other's needs than just being somebody's everything. One way we can meet someone's needs is to say, I'm not, I can't be your everything and you can't be my everything. But we should be each other's most everything. And then what accommodations can we make so that being together means neither of us is miserable, that we both feel fulfilled. And then we are 
everything to that person because we make all things because we make all things possible for that person. We make it possible for them to have a loving, committed relationship with hot, you know, vanilla or rough sex, and also possible for them to have, you know, these things outside that relationship that they need to explore outside the relationship at the same time. So we are everything. We are all possibility, all possibilities. But you just have to let go of that, you know, monogamy obsession and that, you know, the cultural messaging that we're given if you're not, you know, if your partner touches anybody else with their genitals ever again, that they don't love you, you never love them, that your commitment isn't serious, that you're not their everything. And you can be her everything. And one of the ways you're doing that is by letting her be everything she is. Yeah. So I guess it's just how to do that and then still feel so that I'm still feeling that she's my everything. But that's just balance and talking to each other. It's, it's balance and talking to each other. And it's also, you know, if you say, all right, you, you can do these things with other people and I'm going to let you and I'm going to walk with this. She has to do these things with other people in a way that doesn't make you feel marginalized. That doesn't make you feel deprioritized. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make you feel less important. You know, if she's obsessed with these things and they're primarily what she wants to do, then perhaps you should seek out a partner who is primarily interested in these things too. But if these are just a thing she needs to do every once in a while, an itch she needs to scratch every once in a while, and the best yeah, way for her to scratch it, it is with somebody else, and then you know, 90% of the time it's all about you, you should be able to get there. And, and you know, you're young. You're in college. Yeah. Your desires and needs may evolve over the years. You know, I've noticed this thing and, you know, you make generalizations about men and women. You're making generalizations about 4 billion people on one hand and 4 billion people on the other hand. There's going to be hundreds of millions of exceptions. Perhaps you're an exception. But it's often the case, I have observed over the decades, that guys kind of know what their kinks and interests and non-normative desires are at 15. And women tend to come into them later in life. Mm Mm-hmm into this full realization because it's slut shaming because women not feeling entitled, the cultural sending these messages to women and, and that, you know, they're to receive, not to, to demand. And a lot of women don't start making demands uh, around their sexual desires or really even being able to articulate or identify them until they're in their thirties or forties. So you may wind up, you know, if you partner with this woman for life for a very long time, you may wind up, you know, you have no outside desires now where the accommodation can be, you know, for both of you to, to sometimes seek something outside the relationship. That may be an accommodation that you realize that you need 10 years down the road. Yeah. No, I think you're totally right. I mean, so many of my women friends have no idea what, what they like or what gets them off mm-hmm. because of what we are told and things like, being told that we're supposed to be monogamous and everything else that you're mentioning. Right. Women's sexuality is policed in this way that, that men's male sexuality isn't. Um, although male sexuality is policed in its own particular and peculiar ways. Um, but Mm -hmm. not, not to the extent where it just shuts men down the way women tend to be shut down, stopped up. I have so many women friends who came into the full realization of who they were sexually and what turned them on and what they wanted when they were 15 years into and two kids into a marriage. Yeah. 
and then they needed an accommodation. Then they needed a new conversation. And, you know, if you had already been accommodating to your partner and then you needed an accommodation, you're likelier to get that accommodation, not to make this too commodified or anything or tit for tatty, but you're kind of putting accommodations in the accommodation bank. Yeah. You know, I made space in our relationship for you to do these things when we first got together and you've been doing them the entire time. Well, there's something I need to do and I want you to make space in our relationship for that and not to be threatened by it in the same way that I have learned not to be threatened by your needs that aren't targeted at me either. Yeah. It's harder to talk about things like this, even with your friends or people like that. It's not necessarily a Christmas discussion. <laughs> yeah. Cause friends will start reinforcing those cultural norms because it can make yeah. friends feel self-conscious about the choices uh, that they're making or the assumptions that they're still buying into if you tear those assumptions down and make different choices. It implicates them in a way that people can be sort of knee-jerk, very defensive. And what they're coming to the defense of are bullshit lies like we're, you know, you're, you're supposed to be everything a partner could ever need or want, or there's something wrong with your relationship. People will defend yeah. that to the depths of their own relationships. Yeah. And then she's offered things like, I'll delete my fat life or I'll delete this and this if that's what you need. But I've been trying to be more like, I know that that's not going to last. But you know, it's perfectly legitimate for you to say, we're getting there and we need to have this conversation. So like for six months while we talk and work through this and I grow more comfortable, could you just, could you, you know, disable your fat life? Can you put it on hold? Like you seeing her willing to to meet you halfway, not you can never do this, delete fat life, damn this, these interests up forever. Uh, but like for right now, while we're still processing this and getting to know each other better, I need you not to like have your shingle out. Yeah. And that's one way that, you know, she can accommodate your insecurities and concerns right now while you're working toward the greater accommodation of her sexual interests and allowing for them outside the relationship. So if she's offering to put this on hold right now, you should take that take yes for an answer. Let her put it on hold for you. That's how she demonstrates to you that you're her first priority. Yeah. Good luck. Thanks, Dan. Hi, Dan. I am a 32-year-old woman uh, living in the Midwest. Uh, my husband and I have been together for eight years, married for three. And right now we're dealing with a bit of a big uh, relationship issue. Um, We used to live on the East Coast, but we moved to the Midwest the last four months uh, so I could go to grad school. Um, I'm in a program that's very intensive, very stressful, and very emotionally taxing. Um, And we made this decision together, deciding to do this almost two years ago. Lately, though, my husband has has really made it hard for me to be with him. Um, He's become resentful and mean and difficult and really feels like uh, I am no longer a part of his life uh, because I am working so hard at grad school. Um, we've gone to see to a therapist and I've told him in no uncertain terms that I don't have the emotional bandwidth to deal with his feelings right now because I'm in a program that's making me work 80-hour work weeks and I just want his support. We both decided on this journey together and it feels like he wants no part of it. Uh, when I try and bring him to social events, he becomes withdrawn or he picks a fight beforehand or he reschedules something. So he tries to have a conflicting uh, appointment or a social event that's 
really make sure that he's not there. And I don't know what to do. I've tried to speak calmly with him. We've brought this up. We've started yelling and we've gone to therapy and I just want his support. I am already emotionally taxed and I need a cheerleader and I can't cheerlead him uh, during this change. Some people will become resentful and angry and difficult in an effort to sabotage their partner's goal, that their partner is working towards something that makes them feel inadequate or makes them feel insecure as if they're going to be left behind or you know, you're changing in a way that's threatening. And so they begin to monkey wrench your efforts by being an asshole. And maybe that's what your husband is doing here, that he's attempting to sabotage your educational and career goals because he feels threatened and insecure. But what I hear you saying is you're stressed out, you're busy, the program you're in is emotionally taxing, you have nothing left for him at the end of the day or the end of the week, but you require from him as you work toward your goal emotional support and a cheerleader and you literally said, I can't be his cheerleader right now. That's fucked up. And that's unfair. And I say this as someone who regularly works 80-hour weeks, some of them very emotionally taxing. And I still find time in that busy week, although less time than in a less busy week, to provide my partner with some emotional support and to be his cheerleader, even if it has to be condensed, cubic zirconium style condensed, into a moment instead of a meal of cheerleading and emotional support. You have to find a way to give. There are times in our lives when we're in a place professionally or emotionally where we expect and have a right to expect to get more from our partner in emotional support and cheerleading in logistical support, even when a partner is working toward a major goal. You know, when I'm finishing a book, I am not doing laundry or housework or making meals or shopping or anything. I am being cared for because there is this goal, but I'm also finding time while I'm working like crazy to care for the people who are caring for me and that I have a big project that I'm pissing a cinder block, which is how I've always described it, doesn't get me off the hook. It doesn't mean I'm only going to get. I still have to budget in some time to give. So if you're not able to give right now, I can understand why your husband might be resentful. If you're not able to cheerlead for him or provide him with any emotional support, even in a condensed cubic zirconium style, it might be understandable that he's being difficult and not wanting to toddle off with you to social events that remind him of why he is getting nothing from you right now and why you feel kind of oddly entitled to give him nothing right now because you are stressed out and busy. And he knew you would be and he agreed to this. Still, that doesn't get you off the hook of having to wedge in some time where you are also providing him with support. And I am operating here only with the information that you gave me. And maybe I'm leaping on, I can't be his cheerleader right now. He needs to be mine harder than I should. But that really gave me pause. So I would encourage you to do a little introspection and ask yourself if the shoes were on the other feet here, if you would not feel resentful, if you were getting nothing and he was demanding that you give, give, give because he was stressed out and busy and working toward this educational professional goal. So right now he couldn't give you anything but expected everything. Would you feel resentful yourself? And if the answer is yes, 
that's where you need to start having this conversation with him with a couple's counselor, not the homo with the sex advice podcast. Also as a footnote, you say you need a cheerleader just spoke to a woman where we were talking about how we can't be everything to our partners. Sometimes we need to find that cheerleader outside the relationship, expecting a partner to be everything to us, including always our cheerleader that can put too much pressure on the relationship and that can destabilize a relationship that can lead to the relationship's collapse. It could take some pressure off your relationship. If you tap some friends or family and you said, you know what, there's something I need right now, which is some cheerleading. I need somebody in my corner who is cheering for me. In addition to the limited amount of cheerleading I'm getting from my husband, because right now I need all the moral support and emotional support that I can get as I work toward this. And maybe if you got a little cheerleading outside the marriage from other sources, don't resent the fact that you have to get it from outside. But maybe if you got a little bit of it from outside because you asked for it from some other people and not just your husband, then you would perhaps find a little cheerleading inside you that you can give to him. Hey, Dan, I am a 25-year-old um, straight female. I have been engaged to my fiance um, for a little while now. Um, we've been together for about four years it's a really great relationship. No problems, you know, for trust and intimacy, sex, things like that. Um, but a little while ago, I did get up in the middle of the night. And if I sit up in my bed, I can see into my living room um, onto the couch. And I did see my fiance masturbating to um, pictures of two different exes of his on social media. And to look to say, I was really um, kind of initially shocked, feelings of jealousy and insecurity, um, certainly worrying about how he was perceiving uh, satisfaction of our sex life because of this. And we really have a great um, sex-positive relationship, both really open to watching porn together, um, watching porn separately, sexual exploration, certainly satisfying each other's kinks. So I guess I perceived this to be him not getting something. So kind of him recalling back to old sexual experiences. And I guess because it wasn't porn, um, it was pictures of individuals that he'd been with in the past. I got kind of really jealous. I did talk to him the next day about it. And he kind of just explained that revisiting old sexual, you know, um, experiences with other women was, you know, kind of gratifying for him. Definitely reassured me that it didn't mean that he was still um, emotionally connected to these women, that he certainly didn't want to still be with these women sexually, but he just kind of got a gratification from old memories. So I I do trust this man, um, obviously, I'm planning to marry him. But I just, I can't shake these nasty feelings of jealousy. And I don't want to feel like that. So I guess I'm just kind of looking for somebody to kind of help me place this into perspective. Is this kind of like a typical normal thing? Like recalling old sexual experiences with past lovers. Is this a normal thing to, to masturbate about previous partners, past sexual experiences? I think it is. It's called the spank bank for a reason and people, you know, file away images mental or otherwise now with our phones and our computers and everybody carrying around a porn production studio in their pocket at all times. It's not just mental images that people file away. It's JPEGs and sometimes video clips that people file away. 
and revisit. Is that normal? I think so. Is it okay? I don't think that's relevant. You will go insane trying to police your partner's masturbatory fantasies and whatever mental images or social media postings he taps to help him crank one out in the middle of the night because he can't sleep and it might help him sleep or whatever else. He needs that release. He needs that masturbatory moment. And you can't tell him what he may or may not think about. What you can ask him is to be considerate of your feelings, that it kind of makes you feel a bit weird to walk into the living room or sit in bed and see him in the living room with his ex-girlfriend's Instagram account open, looking at pictures of her in a swimsuit from this summer while he jacks off. That that makes you feel a little insecure and it is inconsiderate. Your preference would be for him not to do that at all, but at the very least, he needs to not do that where you're going to see it, not do it in your living room, or he's to angle the computer away from the bedroom while he enjoys his ex-girlfriend's social media accounts. I think this is actually really common now. So many people have so many photos on their phones and hopefully from their past relationships, happy memories of sexual experiences that they may be tempted to call up mentally or otherwise diving into the archives when they want to masturbate. Doesn't mean they're not attracted to the person they're with now. Doesn't mean that they're not enjoying creating new memories with the person they're with now. It's just those old memories are there for a reason. Spanks for the memories. They're there. And they're arousing. And I really feel sometimes that there are two different ways people masturbate. Some people masturbate about what they have done, have experienced, have witnessed, have participated in. And some people masturbate about what they want to have happen. Some people masturbate about the future. A lot of people masturbate about the past and your boyfriend may be a pasturbator as opposed to a futurebater and you have to allow him to be who he is sexually, particularly when he is exercising his, I think, legitimate right to some erotic autonomy. Everybody masturbates or should masturbate. If I had you on the phone, I would turn this around on you. When you masturbate and I hope you masturbate, what do you think about? Only him and only the future? Or do you occasionally think about your high school boyfriend, if you're one of those lucky few whose first experience sexually was really hot, really positive, do you sometimes think about that when you masturbate? It's not a betrayal, is it, when you do it? So it shouldn't be a betrayal when he does it. What is a betrayal is the inconsideration. You need to take your feelings into consideration and keep that private. Keep it out of sight so you can get it out of mind. Hi, Dan. I was listening to your most recent episode about Erica Moen's new book, Drawn to Sex. I'm a big fan. And I have a question about having the talk with a sibling. I have a brother who is 12 and we are 13 years apart. He's growing up in the same household I did. And my parents are very sex negative and closed minded about anyone outside of the heteronormative agenda. So I've tried to influence him and be more to be more open-minded, for example, asking him if he has a crush on any boys or girls at school, to which my other family members chastise me in front of him for asking him weird questions like that. I don't trust my conservative asshole parents to teach him about consent and sex positivity as he approaches puberty, so I have two questions. At what age would it be appropriate to give him Erica's new book because it's amazing and I think it would really teach him uh, the skills he needs moving forward here. And um, 
is there anything else I should know about attempting to help him through this learning phase so I don't screw him up too and make him go through all the therapy and healing I had to in order to have this sex positive mindset? Any advice is much appreciated. People are likelier to get screwed up because they have too little information than they have too much information. People are likelier to get screwed up or hurt or hurt someone else because no one had a conversation with them about sex, about sex positivity, about consequences, about birth control, about consent, likelier to get screwed up in the absence of that conversation than because they had that conversation. But there's always a risk when you talk to somebody that you might scare them or alarm them, particularly when somebody is 12 or 13 and self-conscious. And a lot of 12, 13-year-old boys don't want to have this conversation with anybody because the message 12, 13-year-old boys get is they shouldn't need to have this conversation with anybody because they should know this stuff. And a real boy, a man, doesn't have to be told. A man knows. And you have to push back against that cultural messaging by having those conversations. If you are certain that your parents aren't going to talk to your brother about sex in a constructive, healthy way because they didn't talk to you about sex in a constructive, healthy way, step up. Have that convo with him. Give him that book. Erica's book is terrific. And I think 12, 13 is a perfect age to receive Drawn to Sex. Erica Moen and Matthew Nolan's terrific basic Primer, primer, primer. I never know how to say that word. We'll go with primer about sex, which covers consent, which covers birth control, which covers really everything I think a 12 or 13 year old might need to know. Covers a lot of things 25 and 35 year olds I've met needed to know but didn't know. And giving him the book allows you to have a conversation about the book. It also allows you to have a conversation about the fact that you're door is always open or your cell phone is always available to him. And if he has questions, he should call you and you would be a good person for him to have these conversations with or to know that he can have these conversations with because you're older and you no longer live at home. He doesn't have to look you in the eye every day and he can have this conversation with you on the phone without having to look you in the eye and you can do these downloads. A lot of parents who want to have conversations with their kids about sex are advised to have it in the car because your eyes are straight ahead and the kid's eyes are straight ahead. You don't have to look each other in the eye while you have these conversations. You can have these conversations via text. You can have them on the phone with him when he's alone and mom and dad aren't in earshot. But there's a couple I think that you should have with him whether he likes it or not. It was my experience. It's the experience of other parents I know that you initiate a conversation with your kid about sex, about birth control, about masturbation, about consent, which is so important, particularly for young boys. And the boy will tell you that they don't need to have that conversation. They don't want to have that conversation. And you have to power through and say, I'm going to say these things because you need to hear them. And I can't operate with the assumption that you already know them because you'll tell me you know them even if you don't to avoid the convo that you really need to have or avoid the download that you really need to get. So resisting is just going to extend this conversation that you really don't want to have. So just let me do the download. Get it out of the way. So give him the book. Have the convo. Make sure he knows he can call you anytime to talk about these things. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy. Hopefully not too at risk youth. 40-year-old um, straight guy here with a question you probably get asked a lot. When to call time on a relationship? Um, but this has me so utterly torn in two. I've been um, complaining to my friends that when you're a grown-up, you have to decide things for yourself but sometimes you just crave someone to tell you what the fuck to do, and that's where you come in, Dan. Um, I've been married about three and a half years, together for five. My wife is an amazing human. 
I know everyone uh, includes this caveat, but it's important because we're not at each other's throats. There's respect and love, just no intimacy. It's it's just completely gone. I was six weeks out of a relationship when we met. Uh, we got engaged at six months, and it's probably significant, but I don't know how much weight to give that fact. Um, at the start, we were great. Sex was great, not mind-blowing, but good, solid, straight-up, boilerplate, boilerplate heterosex uh, most days of the week, at least once a day for at least a year. So it was, it was on. Uh, we did a lot of, of life stuff really fast. Uh, we engaged, got engaged, got married, bought a house, made another human, became parents, and we make a great team. If this was the amazing race, we'd be winning for sure, uh, operating rationally, working through challenges, high-fiving like a couple of idiots. But here's the thing. About two years ago, I just stopped feeling anything for her in terms of attraction, in terms of affection. Felt weird to touch her, felt weird to sleep in the same bed. The closest I can get to an analogy is that we feel like siblings, not spouses. And um, I've tried to Esther Perel the shit out of this, but I haven't been able to solve it, <laughs> as amazing as she is. Um, and apart from a handful of times, I haven't slept in the uh, bed for two years. I've had sex maybe three times in the last year and a half. And into the mix is a work crush I've had for six months. We've made out, we made out once when we were drunk, and it's like a switch tripped in my brain. And I realized I still could feel lust and desire for somebody. It was a lightning bolt moment, I guess. Um, my wife and I are great friends. We both adore our little boy, and he's the life in our lives. We pour our affection into that child. He has completely displaced our affection for each other. We continue to operate as an amazing team, just not in terms of in intimacy. I try not to think about it, but it's really the elephant in the room. My wife still wants affection, intimacy, sex, and everything that goes with that. I know these are totally reasonable things to want. Uh, for my part, I think, and I've said this to her, I'm willing to trade that just to be around my son for now. And I think that's because I didn't feel anything for my son for about a year. Uh, it's like, take it or leave it. There's a child, he's cute, whatever. And then it just hit me. like, And all of a sudden, I fell in love with my kid. So what do I do, Dan? Do I be the asshole that stays, uh, denies my wife's intimacy just so I can play a larger part in the life of my son? Or do I be the asshole that abandons my family, leaving her to raise a kid mostly on her own? So which asshole should I be, Dan? <laughs> Please help. To be rejected constantly by your spouse, by your partner, sexually rejected, is really to have your ego and your self-esteem just shoved into a wood chipper once or twice a day or every time that you attempt to initiate sex or ask for physical affection and you are denied or shot down. That's so painful. What you are doing to your wife or what you've been doing to your wife over the last two years since your attraction to her mysteriously evaporated one day is unfair. It's nearly sadistic and, and you know it's unfair and you know it's that you're inflicting pain on her. You describe yourself as an asshole and you want to know what kind of asshole to be. So I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. What I do want to tell you is that there's a third asshole choice here, not just the asshole who denies his wife affection, not just the asshole who abandons his family. You need to be the asshole who goes to your wife and 
says to her, what do you want to do? What do you want? Obviously, I'm not attracted to you sexually, romantically anymore. I love you. I love our family. We work together as a team well. We are great friends. We have respect for each other and a low-conflict relationship, which is amazing considering if I was your wife and this was happening to me, this would be a high-conflict relationship because I would be miserably unhappy and I would make sure that you knew it at every moment. But you have a low-conflict relationship, so you need to put all your cards on the table and say, a companionate marriage can be a wonderful marriage. Obviously, companionate marriage is what we've been doing for the last two years. And except for all those times that I've rejected you physically, sexually, and denied you affection, which I'm sure were painful to you, we have somehow had good times, good experiences, love, and a different kind of affection. We are like siblings. We are like friends. And so we have to figure out what form our relationship should take going forward. Do we want to have a companionate marriage? Is that something that you want to continue to have? Because I have imposed a companionate marriage on you. And what you're giving her, I'm going to shift out of speaking in your voice, what you're giving her is a moment to choose what you've imposed on her, to, to make an active choice herself. You've imposed a companionate marriage on her. You go to her and say, look, do we stay in the companionate marriage Really, that I imposed on you, that I inflicted on you, or do we part? And I fear parting because I don't want to not be a full-time parent myself as well, but I can't ask you to stay in a marriage like the one that you're in now if it makes you miserable. That isn't fair. And you can continue to work together well as parents. You continue to be great friends. You know, divorcing, which may be your best option, doesn't mean you have to move to other sides of the city in which you live or other sides of the world. If you have a low conflict relationship and you're good partners and good parents together, you can get apartments in the same building. You can get houses across the street from each other. You can get one house and one apartment. And rather than the kids shuttling back and forth, the kid stays in that house. And when it's your week, you're home. And when it's her week, she's home. Otherwise, you share and swap the apartment space. And I think that's a much better plan for a lot of kids whose parents end their relationship. Let the kids stay put. Make the parents run back and forth. Make them pack the bag for the week, not the kids. Less destabilizing. So there are options between absentee father and continuing to force your wife to exist in this affectionless, sexless marriage that I assume makes her miserable. You don't say whether you've ever had a really all cards on the table, no holds barred conversation with her about how she's feeling about where you're at. An open relationship, polyamory, also options. You can stay married. You can stay together. You can have one household. You can have a girlfriend. She can have a boyfriend. You can seek sex outside the relationship. And who knows? Maybe in time it'll kick back into gear. I remember a letter years ago from a man who when his wife and he had a small child – all the physical affection evaporated and they were, as you say, pouring all affection into their child. And a child is really a, a, another form of physical intimacy and it can be a taxing and draining form of physical intimacy. And when their child was young, his wife had no interest in sex and sex dried up and died and they slept in separate bedrooms. And then when the child was eight or nine, it all kicked back into gear and they hadn't left each other. He'd had affairs on the side to get his needs met, but they hadn't left each other and it just came back. And who knows, maybe if you hang out long enough, it'll come back. But you have to let her make those choices. That's how you get off the asshole hook. You're being an asshole now. How you get out of being the asshole is to give her the power. 
power you've stripped from her. You've imposed a form of marriage on her that may be making her miserable. Let her decide going forward what kind of marriage she wants to be in. Companionate marriage with you or another marriage with somebody else to be named later. Hi. Uh, you talk a lot on your show about companionate marriages where a couple stays together even though they no longer have a sexual or romantic relationship. And oftentimes, as you say, this is for financial reasons and in order to perhaps continue co-parenting young children. But do you think a couple can or should continue living together in a companionate marriage when there aren't children or financial constraints? My partner of 10 years and I have recently been separated after our years-long open relationship hit some bumps. Now we're talking about breaking up. However, my partner suggested a companionate marriage, and I'm wondering if there's a precedent for this, whether it's feasible, etc. For the record, neither of us are asexual, so we would be perhaps having sex with other people. His reasons for recommending a companionate open marriage is that we are very good friends, we get along terrifically as roommates, and we love and care for each other and also for the sake of our families, namely our parents, who are very invested in our marriage to one another. What do you think about this? Stupid? Feasible? Something you've seen work for people? Not stupid. Eminently feasible. And I have seen this work for others. You don't have to stay in a friendly marriage, companionate marriage, only when there are kids and there's stability and security at stake or when finances prevent you from separating. There are people who choose to remain in a companionate marriage because it's what they want. They want each other. They want this kind of companionship. They want that particular form of marriage or maybe it's not what they wanted at the beginning, but it's where they've wound up and they don't wish to separate. They want to remain husband and wife or wife and wife or husband and husband and seek sex outside the relationship. And it's perfectly legitimate. And it works well so long as it's what both people in that relationship want. Companionate marriages don't work well if one person wants a companionate marriage and the other person doesn't want a companionate marriage. A companionate marriage can also be a compromise. And sometimes it can be a miserable compromise. We're in a companionate marriage because we won't leave each other because our kids are young and we don't want to do that to them. Or we're in a companionate marriage and we can't leave each other because financially we can't afford to part. And so the companionate marriage sometimes gets dinged as a negative because a lot of the ones that we know about or hear about are the companionate thing was the unhappy compromise. For you guys, it's the joyful choice. What you're proposing may be the best form of a companionate marriage. Think of the, the woman uh, from the previous call who may have a companionate marriage imposed on her. She may accept those terms. She may accept a companionate marriage because she wants to keep her family together, but it's not what she wanted ideally. It'll always be a stone in her shoe. You, on the other hand, you and your spouse, this companionate marriage would be a, an active and joyful choice that you both freely made. Not to keep the home together for the children's sake, not because you can't afford to part, but because you want to be together. So your companionate marriage, no stones in anyone's shoes. Both of you, happy and together. Yeah, that could work. Hi, I'm a 28-year-old female from California and um, straight, I guess. And basically just met this guy after sort of talking for three weeks um, and, you know, building a relationship that was not physical. 
in person even. Um, chemistry's all there. He's really awesome, super respectful, really sweet, really nothing, no red flags other than, and this isn't even a red flag, I'm just trying to figure out how to communicate to change with them. He's like extremely rough touch. <laughs> how do I say that? It's like um, when he's when he's kissing, he like basically gave me a bloody lip and it's just because he's excited. It's not like a kinky thing. It's like, blah, 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 blah. And I feel like he's just like manhandling me in this way where he doesn't know his own strength because he's very like goofy and large. And um, I kind of got like flipped out on him this morning because he was just like jostling me in the kitchen affectionately. And I was just like, fuck off sort of, because you know, give me my personal space, man. And I just don't know how to make it clear that like, I don't want to be touched really even 50% of the time, but that doesn't mean I don't like you. And, you know, he's really open, but I feel really awkward about it for some reason. You've used your words. Continue to use your words unselfconsciously. You are letting him know when and how you appreciate being touched. And now you get to see whether he can take that kind of feedback constructive criticism and incorporate it and change his behavior or adjust his behavior so that when he is touching you, it is welcome and it is the kind of touch that you appreciate. And if he can do that, then, you know, you've only recently begun to see this guy. He's shown to you that he has the capacity to hear you, adjust his behaviors. And that's good. That's something you want to see in someone that you're only just getting to know that you're beginning to date. That's a quality in that person that makes them a good long-term prospect, not just that they have good judgment, but that they can hear you. So don't be self-conscious about this. The only thing I would say to complicate this a little bit is that sometimes you have to say these things more than once. And sometimes you have to remind somebody. If every time he touches you, you have to push back and remind him that this isn't how or when you like to be touched and you get angry about it, that's a problem. And it may be an indication that he's not someone that you can be with long term. But, you know, if every once in a great while he has a brain fart or every once in a great while he touches you in a way that – or at a moment when you are not ready to be touched because he's not a mind reader and he's adjusted the way he touches you but, you know, it does it at the wrong moment, you need to roll with that. You need to demonstrate to him that you're the kind of person he wants to be with, that you're not a minefield that's going to blow up every time he puts a, a foot wrong, that you're going to continue to communicate with him in a constructive way and give him feedback and hopefully he'll adjust that you will show him that you have patience and that you're going to react to his infractions in a proportionate and sensible way. Hi, Dan. I'm in a relatively new relationship by new, I guess I mean, it's been going on about seven months. And my question is about, it's a pretty basic question. It's about when to say, I love you. I was wondering if you had sort of like, um, some guidelines to go by. So essentially what's going on is the guy I'm dating isn't ready to say that he loves me yet, which is okay, but I'm starting to love him. Everything else is fine. Super affectionate, really attentive. Sex is really good, but he says that he isn't ready to say that yet. And so it's the longest anybody's ever gone without saying it. And I've never been the one to say it first. Um, he knows that I feel that way about him, but isn't ready to take the plunge and say it, I guess. Like, what do you think? I mean, we put so much weight on this word. <clears throat> it's just, it's hard to, uh, I don't know. It's the first time I felt befuddled about it. And I just love um, your feedback about that. Most people listening to you would say, say it when you're ready to say it. Say, I love you when you feel it. But some people 
feel it too soon. And some people throw I love you out there to manipulate someone else into saying I love you too and making a kind of emotional investment in that person that's premature. It's, it's considered a red flag of an abuser when someone basically paints you into a corner where you have to say I love you too or you're an asshole and then you said it and then you're committed and you may not know that person well enough to say I love you too after 48 hours. But seven months in, if you're ready to say it, say it. You're ready to say it and you know he's not ready to say it. So how do you say it? Well, here's how I would do it. I would put my hand over his mouth and I would say, I love you. And I would put my hand over his mouth so he did not, he could not say it right back to me. And then I would say, I know you're not ready to say it to me. I wanted to say it to you. You don't have to say it to me yet, but I'm going to start saying it to you because it's how I feel. And you are under no obligation to I love you to me. Now, hopefully you'll get there. I would like my feelings to be reciprocated, but there is no rush. I am not rushing you, but I'm going to start saying it because I'm feeling it. And seven months in ain't too soon. Hi, I'm a 24-year-old girl from New York City, and I'm calling on behalf of my friend. Basically, he told me he's dating this girl who he really loves, and but there's one problem. She has a really smelly vagina, and he doesn't know what to do about it, and he's very also confused by the issue. And we are, I, I try to counsel him on this, and so does my other friend who's sitting with me right now. And we're just wondering what we should tell him, because he thinks it is like, a big deal and he mentions it a lot to us as an issue, but he likes everything else about her. If you're going to go down on a guy and his dick stinks, his ball stink, the head of his penis is all rank, you tell him without much hesitation to go wash that thing. Go take a fucking shower. You want to put that in my mouth? You want my face down in your crotch? Soap and water. Now. And you can say that without much hesitation because it's not a fraught conversation for a dude. It's harder to have that kind of conversation with Someone who has a vagina with a woman, most people have vaginas are women, because women have been told throughout history that their vaginas are smelly, disgusting, they need to be cleaned, they need to be douched, uh, that, they're, that they're impure and unclean when they're menstruating. There's just so much thrown at women about their vaginas and their vulvas being gross that saying something to a woman about a strong odor is just – much more fraught. That said, a strong vaginal odor can be a symptom of a sexually transmitted infection. Uh, if bacteria are out of whack and there's a lot of bacteria that lives in vagina, a lot of bacteria that lives all over our bodies, a lot of naturally occurring bacteria in the vagina, bacterial vaginosis is a thing that a woman might need to see a doctor about to get treated. So that feedback, there's a strong odor, could be valuable and helpful health information that a woman might need. But how do you roll that out? How do you say that to a woman without tapping into all that awful cultural messaging and, and that can make a woman feel really self-conscious and insecure about letting anyone put their nose down there? I don't know. You say that very delicately. You frame it like that. I love you. I think your vagina is beautiful. I think your bulb is beautiful. I want to put my nose down there. I don't know if you're aware of this, but you might want to check with a doctor because there's a strong odor and I and I think acknowledging the cultural shit that gets thrown at women about their vaginas being dirty and smelly and awful and gross and impure and unclean that you're not talking about that and you don't believe that about women's vaginas but you believe as somebody's sex partner that you have a responsibility to let them know if there could be an issue 
that they might want to address with their healthcare provider. And if the person hears that and freaks out and flips out, well, maybe you said it wrong. Maybe they were highly sensitive to that kind of critical feedback. And maybe you weren't destined to be together then. Hey, Dan, I'm a longtime listener. I have a dilemma. So I'm 23, single, straight, female. I'm divorced for a year. I have a great career. I just bought my first house. Everything in my life is settled, and I've achieved everything I've been wanting to achieve for this age and stage in my life. The only thing that is missing for me is being a mom. I've always wanted to have a kid. I've had baby fever since I was like 15. (laughs) And I thought I was going to have a kid with my husband, but, you know, obviously that did not pan out the way I thought it would be, which is good in the end. But I have this calming and this desire to be a mom, and I want to do it on my own. So the last couple months I've been in contact with a known sperm donor. I've totally vetted him. We get along super well, and we're planning to meet, and hopefully I will get pregnant. So... For me, this decision feels natural and wonderful, and I'm truly prepared in every aspect to become a mom of my own. I just don't understand how I'm supposed to tell my conservative, judgmental family that I'm going to get impregnated by a stranger and raise the child on my own. (laughs) So if you have any advice on how I can phrase that to them that would go over smoothly or that would be relatable to them... I would love that because I need to tell them eventually. I just don't want to lie or, you know, white lie about the circumstances because it's extremely important. I'm going to be having my first baby. So if you have any way that I can tell my family, I would be so grateful because I've been thinking about it for months and I can't figure out how to tell them. You can't just put a bow on a grenade and have it not explode. Like, there's no way to smoothly tell your family something that you know is going to upset them without it upsetting them. There's no way to package that or frame that that isn't going to explode. You can just get the explosion over with and let them have their meltdown about it. All my queer listeners who've come out to their families are hearing you right now and if not rolling their eyes, maybe empathizing, understanding we've all been there. You're going to go tell your conservative judgmental family, something about your life, some choices that you are making that they won't approve of, and they're going to have to eat it because it's your life and you're going to do this whether they like it or not. And then boom, and mom and dad get to have their ship fit and your siblings get to run around in circles and aunts and uncles get to sneer and side eye you. And you just have to let that process play out and you have to stand your ground And you have to tell them that you expect them to come around to love and support you. And maybe it's going to be difficult for them at first. Maybe you won't get a lot of love and support. But the arrival of a grandchild or a niece or a nephew has a way of shifting people's perspectives. And parents who disapproved of your gay relationship, your interracial relationship, your choice to parent as a single person prior to the arrival of that grandchild – They can have an epiphany. They can have a shift. They can come the fuck around when they see that little bundle of known donor, your egg, joy in your hands or in their hands. But you got to stand your ground. 
There's no way to avoid the shit show. You just got to have it. Curtains up on the shit show. And once the curtains are up, eventually the curtains come down on that shit show, ideally. There are families that never get over it. There are families that never speak to their queer kids again. There are families that go out of their way to demonstrate their disapproval at every opportunity. And you know what you do with those families? You don't see much of them. You make your own family. And you let them know that that is something you are prepared to do. That you understand that this isn't a choice that they would make or they would have wanted you to make. This is, however, the choice that you as an adult at 23 seems a little young to me to be married, much less to be having children. I think you could put this off for three or four years, but you're an adult. You don't have to do what I want you to do any more than you have to do what your parents want you to do. But you're going to make this choice and they're going to have to live with it. And you tell them that if they can't love and support you in the end and love and support this child of yours – their grandchild, their niece, their nephew, their cousin, they're not going to see much of you. You're going to go find your logical family and hopefully your biological family is a part of your logical family. But if it ain't, it ain't. And you're not going to sacrifice your happiness or your life goals to please your bios if they aren't also your logicals. All right. Before we get to your response calls, here are some of your tweets or some more of your tweets. Sam tweets. At Fake Dan Savage, literally sat on the floor of my kitchen for the story of Larry Solomon while listening to this week's Savage Lovecast. These Christian people had me hashtag shook, hashtag yikes, hashtag no thank you next. Oh, there's something I neglected to mention about Larry Solomon at the top of last week's show. He's the man, of course, behind biblical gender roles. I did talk about how his first wife cheated on him and divorced him. And I'm personally still wrestling with why a woman would cheat on the author of such posts as how a husband can enjoy sex that causes his wife pain and why a wife should endure painful sex with her husband. But I failed to note that Larry is no longer single. Sorry, ladies. According to his bio at BGR, Larry has since remarried. So he's off the market for now. And if you're out there wondering why someone would marry an asshole like this, just remember That someone married Charles Manson. Alex Makes Coffee tweets regarding episode 637 and the legal implications of BDSM. UK listeners should know that you cannot consent to what is described as actual bodily harm, which is any action that may impact the comfort of an individual. Consent has been thrown out as a defense in court. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Hmm, maybe we could get Brexit tossed out on these grounds. Although a majority consented to Brexit, to leaving the European Union, the end results will definitely impact the, quote, comfort of tens of millions of individual Brits. Let's take that to court. And finally, Bees Wings tweets, why are they called sex robots and not sex hobots? That's a good question that we'll get around to answering on a future episode of Savage Lovecast. If you want me to read your tweets on the show, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now, some response calls. Hi, Dan. 27-year-old Jew here calling with a comment for the woman whose partner wears a Hitler mustache. Dan, I think your advice was spot on, but I also think you missed an opportunity to talk about good judgment. Someone who wears a mustache like that is either trolling for a certain reaction or they're an idiot. And when you partner with someone like that, it makes you look like an idiot, too. There are plenty of good lays out there that don't look like Hitler. She should have some respect for herself and her culture and DTMSA. Oh, my God. Break up with the person with the Hitler mustache. Don't even give them a chance to shave it off first. They're arguing with you about the meaning of swastikas. 
this is not about if they might be mistaken for an asshole. They are an asshole. Are they 12? I mean, oh my God, break up with them. It's horrifying. Break up with them immediately and never speak to them again. Hey, Dan, it's me, the girl who called about the Hitler mustache. I wanted to let you know that I told him that I just thought it was too weird and I couldn't get over it. And then he shaved it. He didn't take it well. He said, I'm sorry that I was such an embarrassment to you and such a burden. And said that if he shaved it, it was going to be for me. And if he didn't shave it, he was going to be alienating me. And I said, well, I think you're alienating a lot more people than just me. And there's a huge list of reasons to shave it. And only one of those reasons is me. The fact that he didn't seem to understand any of the other reasons just was too bothersome. It just was a pretty huge blind spot. And then the more I thought about it, you were really in my head and I, I couldn't really think about anything other than just how weird and um, pedantic, as you said, it was. And it was just too much of a problem and indicated too big of a, like a long list of issues that someone would do that. And um, I, I told him I couldn't really see him anymore. Thanks for your help. It, it clarified a lot of things for me. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. The Savage Lovecast is going on tour. We are taking the Lovecast this year in calendar year 2019 to Portland, Vancouver, Seattle, Denver, San Francisco, Chicago, Madison, Minneapolis, Boston, and Toronto for live shows. Go to savagelovecast.com and click on events for dates and tickets and more details. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. If you're not already following Chrissy Teigen on Twitter, go to Twitter and follow at Chrissy Teigen. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.